Hey. How's everyone doing? Good. Awesome. Well, welcome to Thrive, uh, which is a multi-church young adult ministry led by young adults for young adults, powered by Jesus to the glory of God. Um, and man, great to see a lot of people from like Kitsap County who are out here tonight. Just like a lot more like Kitsap people who are here and uh, some people who are here for the first time. Just so cool to see everybody. Um, and I'm just, I, man, uh, I'm going to share on a topic tonight that's a pretty, pretty hefty subject, but I'm actually, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and uh, I'm excited you guys get to be here to share it, share in it. Um, let me just kind of get prepared here as we get going. Uh, some of you who have been here for the last couple of weeks know that um, we've been going through the book of Romans. And man, one of, the, one of the things about going through a book of the Bible is that the Bible sets the agenda. Uh, that you don't simply get to talk about your favorite parts, but you get to talk about whatever the, whatever the Bible says you're supposed to talk about. Um, and that's what we're doing. Um, Michelle, would you mind throwing up our Roman slide up there? I think it's on the, the slides. Um, last week, we looked at Romans chapter 1. And um, if you were here, you remember that this is the passage where Paul basically lays out the problem with humanity. Um, the problem of sin. And we talked about how in a bid to reject God's rule over our lives, we've taken his truth and we've suppressed it. We've taken his revelation, we've ignored it, and we've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols. Um, and the consequence, the, the God's punishment for our rebellion is to give us over to the very things that we want. I mean, how crazy is that? It's essentially saying that God's punishment is to give you your wildest dreams. But the reason that you may not actually be satisfied with what you get is that the results of actually getting what our sinful hearts desire is just catastrophic. And we talked about that last week, and in the course of doing that, uh, one of the passages we read was out of Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, um, and it says that one of the results that happens when God gives us over to our own sinful desires is a breakdown in human sexuality. Uh, I'm going to read these verses again. If you want to follow along, um, it's Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. I'm just sort of setting some context here for what we're going to actually talk about tonight. So in Romans 1, 24 through 27, it says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So that was one of the things that we read last week. And it probably doesn't need to be said that this passage touches on one of the most charged subjects in our culture and in our churches, and that's the subject of homosexuality. And this topic's in our passage, so we have to preach it, um, and it's uh, such a hot-button issue that I just kind of thought it would be pastoral malpractice to sort of breeze by it with simply a few words. And so instead, what we're going to do tonight is we're just going to hit it head-on, um, not being ashamed of the truth of God's Word, um, but actually being fully persuaded that there is good news in this. Um, and this will actually not be the only time that we're going to do something like this. Over the course of the book of Romans, there are, there are a number of topics that uh, you might call hot potatoes, uh, as in they're, they're culturally controversial and they're hard to handle. Hot potatoes. 
And as we go through this book, we're going to periodically pause to address hot potatoes in Romans. Michelle, do you want to throw up that slide there? Yeah, there you go. And so our first topic in, in this little kind of series within a series, Hot Potatoes and Romans, homosexuality, we're also going to talk about some related issues such as transgenderism. So uh, fasten your seatbelts and we're just going to, we're going to, we're going to go for it. Um, but one thing I, I want to say, um, just as we start out here, I've had a bunch of people asking me, man, like Michael, how are you feeling about this talk? I'm actually feeling really, really fortunate that this is our subject for tonight. Um, and I want to give you four reasons why. The first reason is that this topic is so important. I mean, hardly a week goes by where you don't hear a story in the news about like a celebrity who has announced that they're coming out or are transitioning genders. You know, I remember a couple of years ago in uh, 2015 when Bruce Jenner, the famous Olympic athlete, announced that he was transitioning to become Caitlyn Jenner. And that was big news. Or, you know, there was an article, I don't know if you knew this, an article this week about a Christian baker, and he, this is someone who was sued for refusing to decorate a cake promoting transgenderism. Uh, and then actually, there's another ongoing story, something happening even right now, about whether the United Methodist Church, which is a big denomination, if they're going to split because they just took a vote, and it was a divisive vote, and they determined in that vote that their denomination was going to continue to uphold a traditional Orthodox Christian understanding of homosexuality and gay marriage. So it's important. I mean, like, it's all over the news. And, like, man, the church should not bury its head in the sand. I mean, I just think we're foolish if we don't actually talk about this topic. Second reason is that it's difficult. (laughs) It's very difficult because the church has so often been at a loss for how to respond to certain issues like this in a way that fully honors God's truth and God's grace. The Bible says Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. But sometimes the church has skewed to one side or the other side and has so rarely actually brought both of those things together. So it's tough. But then thirdly, and probably most importantly of all, the reason I feel really fortunate to talk about this is just because this subject is so, so deeply personal. And just for a minute, I want to acknowledge just the different audiences that might be in the room tonight. Um, You know, there are going to be probably many of us, probably, I wouldn't be surprised if every single one of us um, will have friends or co-workers who identify as gay or lesbian. Um, You know, others of us may have family members who identify as part of the LGBTQ community. Um, It's likely that there might even be people in this room here tonight who experience same-sex attraction or who wrestle with their gender identity. And the reason I say that is that according to one study, 83% of LGBTQ people grew up in church. 83%. And in fact, you know, as I have been a part of different Christian communities over the years, both here in the U.S. and in other places, um, I've known many Christians who have experienced same-sex attraction, and they've had to grapple with how to respond to that in their own lives. So this is deeply personal. And just in light of that, I want to encourage all of us tonight just just to not assume that every single person in this room already shares your same perspective on this topic. There are going to be some of us who are thoroughly convinced of the Bible's teachings on homosexuality. There are going to be others of us who have doubts about them, or maybe even like violently disagree with some of the things that I'm going to say. And I want to just say, as the one who's saying it, that that's okay, and we want this to be a place where you can actually wrestle through these things and not feel like someone's going to like take a big stick out and thwack you over the head for actually saying what's on your mind. We, <laughs> you should be able to say what's on your mind. So, 
I would encourage you all, just give grace to your neighbor, especially as we go into small groups tonight. And I hope that in unfolding all of what the Bible says, that this will be a space to really genuinely wrestle through it. And then just finally, one last reason. Um, and that's that I really honestly do believe that what the Bible has to say about homosexuality is radically good news. And you're going to see that as we go through this. That, that man, if you're someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, our culture says that the Bible is bad news for you. And, man, if I, if I had one prayer, it would be my hope to basically turn that on its head and say that the Bible is good news. It's good news. So that's our context for tonight. I want to go ahead and give us a quick roadmap of what we're going to look at. Um, I want to pass out some handouts. I actually have prepared some handouts just because I think this is an important enough topic that if you want to actually take some notes and then take those notes away and have them for reference, that you can do that. Um, And then I'm going to pray, which is probably the most important thing I can do before we really jump in. So quick roadmap. Um, What I want to do tonight is I want to tell two stories. Um, And when I say stories, what I mean is that the first story I want to tell is the story of our culture. You know, if you've come of age in the last decade, which is, you know, most of us here, you, it would be easy to get the impression that a wide variety of different sexual expressions and preferences, that that's always been the norm in our culture. Uh, because that, that, that's how normative it is today. I mean, that's not the case. Uh, what I want to do in telling the story of our culture is show how we got to where we've gotten. And to show that beneath the views that our culture has on homosexuality, there are other more fundamental beliefs that Christians need to know how to address. The second story I want to tell is the story of the Bible. And I I want to simply take the good news of what Jesus has done, and I want to show how that applies to this issue. And along the way, I'm going to look at some different biblical texts, not just one, but a bunch of them that deal with this topic. And then once I've told these two different stories, we're going to get really practical. I'm going to conclude tonight with some nitty gritty on where, you know, how the rubber meets the road. And if we have time, we might even open it up for a live Q&A if anyone wants to ask any follow-up questions. So that's our, that's our roadmap. Um, I'm going to ask, can I get two volunteers um, to pass out two handouts? What I have here is one handout where you can take notes. And then I have another handout, which is an article that I would encourage you to read, not as you're sitting here in your seat tonight, but take it away, go and read it. This is an article that's a testimony uh, from a woman who met Jesus um, in a very unlikely circumstance that pertains to what we're going to talk about tonight. And I wanted to share it with you because I think, especially if you're someone um, who feels, you know, I'm pretty squared away on what I think the Bible says, and, and, I've, and I've kind of grown up in Christian circles, and I'm used to all this. Read this article because this article gives you a perspective on what it's like to come to Jesus when this is an issue that you might struggle with personally. So uh, I'm going to pa- have those two things be passed out. I think uh, we'll hopefully have enough for everybody. And as that's happening, let me pray for us, and then I'm going to jump right in. Lord, I want to thank you for the gospel, and thank you for the goodness of the gospel. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that we can stand on it, not be ashamed of it, and trust, Lord, that what you have to say for us is truly good and truly life. Um, God, I just ask for your help. Would you help me um, to share these things in a way that's bold, in a way that's pastoral, and in a way that's practical. And would you just meet every single person here tonight, no matter where our convictions are on this subject, and just help point us to Jesus so that we would know him more and love him more. In his name we pray. Amen. 
So uh, I got you a roadmap up on the screen here. Uh, The first thing I want to look at is just the story of our culture. And I want to look at where we are, how we got here, and what it means. Uh, You know, as I said, it's pretty obvious that we live in a culture that, by and large, uh, endorses homosexuality. But this this is a fairly recent development, if you look at the big picture. And I want to give you a few examples just to illustrate just how quickly this has happened. Uh, so one example would be in the area of marriage. So uh, any, anyone alive when Bill Clinton was president? I think a good number of us here. You know, I, I'm technically a millennial. I think a lot of you guys are Gen Z. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe my fellow millennials here can, can remember the Bill Clinton days. You know, so, so in 1996, Bill Clinton, he signed the Defense of Marriage Act. And in that act, he, he said that according to, to, to the law, a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife, that's the, the kind of the U.S. definition of marriage. That's 1996. Now, fast forward two decades. Now, over the course of just two decades, state after state in our country begins to legalize same-sex marriage to the point that in 2015, there was a Supreme Court decision. I don't know if you guys remember this. this was, uh, the decision was called Obergefell versus Hodges. And that was the, the court case that legalized same-sex marriage as the law of the whole country. So, like, in the course of just two decades, that's how quickly the shift has happened. And then another example, there's going to be a graph up on screen here. Uh, this first graph, this is how public opinion on, uh, how mar- on, on marriage, how quickly that's changed. And uh, if it pops up, you'll be able to see the way that uh, in the course of just a short span of time, you know, the chart kind of goes like this. <laughs> And then there's a second graph that shows how quickly Christian attitudes on homosexuality have changed. You, you'll, you'll have to just kind of imagine it in your head because... Oh, there, there we go. So, there, yeah, there's a timeline. And that just shows some, some key moments in, in sort of the, the, the changes and how, and how our, our legal system has approached homosexuality. You can see the closer you get to the present, like the more and more packed it gets. And then next slide... There should be, yeah, there's this chart. You can see that, like, all the lines skew up, and what that's indicating is that, like, public opinion on, on the acceptance of things like gay marriage have just gone sh- straight up. And then there's one more. And, uh, you know, I can't, I can't even read what that says, so you probably can't even read what it says. Well, just trust. It illustrates just rapid change. Now, looked at on the surface, Tim... Yeah, well, just repeating it for the recording, if anyone didn't hear, you know, the comment just made was that if you look at Obama's presidency, beginning of his presidency, he says one thing, end of his presidency, something, something different. So um, you look at this and you think, wow, you know, a lot of change. <laughs> and it's almost as though our, the understanding of, of homosexuality is just reversed so quickly. But what I want to show you is that the reality is a lot, lot more complicated. And so now, you know, that's where we are. Look at, I'm going to look now at how we got here. Um, And and the the best analogy I can use is that modern views on sexuality, it's a little bit like an underwater volcano. Um, Anyone ever watch Magic School Bus growing up? Yeah, all of my science knowledge just about comes from Magic School Bus. There's a Magic School Bus episode where they learn about how islands are formed. Anyone ever see this episode? And they learn about how, like, the way it works is there's, like, this underwater volcano that, like, over hundreds and thousands of years just bloop, 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 kind of builds up and builds up and builds up. And then all of a sudden, it just pops above the surface. And you say, oh, look, you know, there's an island there. I didn't know that was there. 
And that's a little bit like what, what our modern views of, on sexuality are like. That If you go beneath the surface, what you find is that prior to the time we're living in now, there have been centuries of societal and ideological change. And I want to give you one historical snapshot, one little moment in history that helps to illustrate that. So uh, if, if you like were uh, in, in like sophomore world history, you probably learned about the Enlightenment back in high school, which uh, you, you kind of get a picture of when that was just by looking at this very fancy, mm, archaic looking painting. <laughs> and the Enlightenment, it was this time when like a lot of, of, of smart people in Europe began to say that it's based on, it's, it's by human reason that we come to understand the truth about reality. But before the Enlightenment, that's not what people thought. Before the Enlightenment, people believed that the way we know objective truth was by divine revelation. In other words, it was through God's revelation that we came to know what was actually really true. And uh, by the way, if you're trying to follow along on the handout, all the little titles in blue, those are the answers to the blanks. So before the Enlightenment, we, we believed that you know objective truth by divine revelation. When the Enlightenment comes, there was a shift and a lot of famous philosophers and European thinkers began to say that we know objective truth by human reason. <laughs> I thought that was off. <laughs> but, as, but, but, but as you guys know, especially if you've like studied philosophy, what happens is, is that after the Enlightenment, there begins to be a, a, like this phase of disillusionment where people become disillusioned with the ability of reason to actually give us the truth. One of the reasons for this, by the way, is because of the world wars. You know, Europe was the epicenter of the two world wars, and Europe was the, the, the very continent that was saying that, oh, human reason will build this perfect society if we just trust in our own knowledge and our own reason. We're going to build this utopia. And then the whole continent exploded in the most devastating wars that the world has ever seen. And it caused there to be this collapse in confidence in human reason. So that now, after the Enlightenment, what we believe is we, we basically have given up and we've said there is no objective truth. And what that means, where that leaves us, is with radical individualism. Where if there is no objective truth, then man becomes the measure of all things. That we become our own source for determining what is true, what is right and wrong, and what produces human flourishing. Man becomes the measure of all things. And just think about what this is. What is this called? It's called an iPhone. We have iPads. We have iPod. Well, we don't actually really have iPods anymore. We just have iPhones. We have, you know, all, all these things that are I, 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 me, me, me. Because man has become the measure of what truth is. And what, let me just flesh out what this means a little bit more practically. Radical individualism creates a new ultimate value, and that new ultimate value is freedom. Freedom. So uh, anyone here ever seen the, the Disney movie Frozen? You know that song that Elsa sings where she sings, no right, no wrong, no rules for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Riley. <laughs> I actually have never seen that movie, so I don't even know how that song goes. <laughs> But the line says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. And that is probably as close as you can get to just like an encapsulation of like what the ultimate value in our society is today. It's freedom. It's freedom. There was a famous philosopher who said it this way. He said, over himself, his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. So it creates a new ultimate value of freedom. It creates a new understanding of identity. 
Where if there, if there is no objective truth, then that means that you have to create your own identity for yourself. A new self-created identity. And then finally, there's a new mode of living. The mode of authenticity. I want to read you a quote that will pop up here on the screen. I think it's also on your handout. Let me just read, read this to you. And as I'm reading it, I want you to just think about whether or not this resonates with your own life. So some, this guy says, Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from the outside. By society, our parents, the church, or whoever else, it is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with one, our one-of-a-kind personality. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm not even necessarily saying if this is good or bad or neutral. I'm just, I'm just saying that I think this captures the, the temperature of our culture that we live in right now. A new ultimate value of freedom, a new self-created identity, and a new mode of living of authenticity. You have to be true to yourself. No one else can tell me who I am. I have to look deep inside myself to find who I am. And just, you know, sidebar, by the way, one of the reasons that can be a little bit challenging and problematic, how do you know which you inside yourself you actually are? I mean, on Mondays, I feel like one thing. On Fridays, I feel like another thing. You know, like the, the, who I feel I actually am changes. It's like a big topsy-turvy curve that, that, that if your identity is found by looking deep inside, that seems unstable. How do you actually know who you really are? So, so there are some issues, I think, and we'll, we'll get into that as we go along. Now, the reason I've done all of this is because isn't it interesting to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and to realize that some of the very things that, that are like on the surface, things like, you know, about human sexuality, homosexuality, transgenderism, that they have roots, that they have roots, that the idea that I need to look inside myself to find out what my gender is resonates with all of these things that have been brewing in our culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I just want to show you that the, 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 the things that are so normal in our culture, they're not, believe, they're not just, you know, a priori truths that can never be questioned, but they have, they have a history to them. And those things can be questioned. And we can ask ourselves, is that really the only way to see reality? And what I want to do now is, is switch to the second part. And I want to tell a different story, a different way of looking at reality through the lenses of the Bible. And as I do that, I am going to touch on homosexuality, but I'm going to first back up a little bit, and I want to just give a broader framework that our topic for tonight will fit into. And so to do that, I'm simply going to look at the big story of Scripture, and that story starts with creation. And when you go back to the story of creation as recorded in, in Genesis, in the opening verses of the Bible, one of the questions you can ask yourself is, well, how did God make us? How did he make us in the beginning? And what does this mean for our identity? What does this mean for, 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 our, for freedom, all of these things? Well, at the very, very least, the first thing that the Bible says is, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Meaning that God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who made us. 
You know, we weren't just cosmic accidents. We weren't just like a whole bunch of atoms that kind of coincidentally collided together and then poof, humanity. But no, like there was an intention behind you. God was thinking something when he made you, when he made us. And if God made us, what does that actually mean practically for identity? What it means is that according to the Bible, God knows our identity better than we ourselves do. And it also says that our identity that God has given us is a gift. It's a gift. Another way that you can put that is that according to the Bible, our identity is not created but discovered. And that the more we come to know Jesus, the more we discover who we really are, the more we come to know ourselves. So isn't that wild? The more you know Jesus, the more you know yourself. And what that means is that being a Christian is a little bit like opening the world's most amazing Christmas present forever. That forever and ever, we'll be able to gaze into the depths of who Jesus is, and we'll come to know him more, we'll come to know more about who he's made us to be, which is why heaven is the place where you are most fully, completely, radically yourself. And, and heaven is not a place where everyone is, you know, uniform, you know, uni, uh, uniform is not uniformity, or what, or unity is not uniformity, that's the saying. That, that man, you know, in heaven, everyone's going to be like, totally themselves, and probably that means that we're not going to all, like, look exactly alike, but we're all going to look just like Jesus. It's so cool. It's so cool. So, according to the Bible, our identity is not created, but it's discovered in Jesus. And, and here's just one example of how this is just such wonderful news. Think, for example, of the, epic, the epidemic of insecurity that is just devouring people in our culture today. Some of you guys might have heard about the existence of safe spaces on college campuses or deplatforming of different speakers that are designed to protect students from influences that would jar their identity. And all of that, I think, points to there just being like this restlessness or this, inse this insecurity about, man, who, who am I really? How do I really know who I really am? I I'm so afraid of anything that might kind of rock the boat. But Christians don't need to be imprisoned in insecurity about who they are, because they know that their identity is rooted in God's love. And that's a love that can never be taken away, and it leads to a confidence, it leads to an ability to take criticism, it leads to an ability to handle failure, because when you fail, like, your life isn't over. Because your life was never about success, it was never about failure, it was about the fact that God loves you. So that's what it means for identity. What about freedom? What does the fact that God made us mean for freedom? It means that true freedom is found when we come to Jesus to seek our identity, or in other words, when we are in right relationship with him. Think about a train. When is a train the most free to be a train? A train is not most free to be a train when it's, you know, like skating off the train tracks. A train is most free to be a train when it's actually running on the train tracks. A train doesn't do much of a good job being a train if it's, you know, not, because it's a, it's a train wreck. And that's a little bit like humanity, that we are most free when we are most walking in right relationship with Jesus in the path of our humanity that he's laid for us. There's a verse in Psalm 119 that says, I will run in the path of your commandments, for you have set my heart free. And this has been something that Christians down through the ages have recognized. There was a famous theologian named Augustine, and he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest 
in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And Jesus said the same thing. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So that's what it means for God to have been the one to make us. But, you know, the Bible says more than simply that God made us. It also says a little bit about how he made us. And the first thing that we can say about how God made us is that God made us as embodied beings. He made us as creatures with bodies. And that might seem so simple. I mean, obviously, you know, I've got a body. I'm using it right now. (laughs) So are you. But this is actually a pretty, you know, radical idea because if you go back to the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks thought that, you know, what a human being really is is not a body. That's just like this prison that we're trying to escape from because the body, you know, hinders you sometimes. But no, the Greeks thought that the body, you know, the, the, the real nature of human beings, it wasn't a body, it was an immaterial soul. But Christians turned that radically on its head and they said, no, bodies matter to God. And he not only made us with bodies, but the biggest proof of that is that Jesus God himself took on a body. You know, if you've ever been in Young Life, you guys in Young Life always say, Jesus is God in a bod. That's right. (laughs) And what that means is that bodies matter to God, that he came not just to redeem our souls, but our bodies as well. And that is just so, again, um, a different way of looking at things than the way that our culture does. Because in our culture, there's so many cries of confusion and of pain and even suicide caused by turmoil over whether my body matches the gender identity that I sense within myself. But Christianity says something different, something gloriously different, is that, that God gave us our bodies and our gender. You know, it says in Genesis, male and female, he created them. And that, that, that body and that gender, that that's a good gift from him and that we don't have to feel at war with our bodies. Uh, when I lived in the UK, I, you know, I mentioned I knew some, some Christians who wrestled with same-sex attraction, and one of them uh, posted this on Twitter one day. He said, our culture says, your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. Does that make sense? So, let, you know, our culture says, let your, your psychology is your sexual identity. You know, what's in your mind or your opinion about what your sexual identity is, that is what is true. Let your body be conformed to it. But the Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. See the difference? So God made us embodied beings. And then lastly, he made us sexual beings. And that's a good thing. God made sex as a gift. He made it to be enjoyed. Used within the proper limits that God has designated for it. And more importantly, God gave sex to be a pointer And it's a pointer to the deep spiritual intimacy that Christians can experience with God and will experience fully someday in heaven. So those are are just three things that you can see based on what Scripture says is true about how God made us. That that God made us, that he made us embodied beings, and that he made us sexual beings. And just really quickly, I also want to look at what creation has to say about marriage, because that's relevant to this conversation too. How did God make marriage? First thing you can say from Scripture is that marriage is grounded in the complementarity of the sexes, that, you know, they complement each other. So remember, for example, in, uh, in the book of Genesis, in the garden, God says, it's not good 
for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that word helper, it's a word in Hebrew, that, uh, the word is kenegdo, and, and it's an interesting word, and people have tried to figure out, you know, what's the best way to translate this in English? It's kind of hard to actually get right in English, but I put some, some ways that you can, you can translate that on the handout. It means like opposite him or according to his opposite. And what that means is that God has made men and women to be different, and that's a very good thing. It can be a very confusing thing. You know, if you're in a relationship, I'm in a relationship. I'm learning. It can be a very confusing thing. Men and women, oh my gosh. The whole thing about men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti. There's so many. Oh, man, I could go on. But it's great. It's a beautiful thing because as God made marriage, he meant it to be a reunion of opposites. And so it's no surprise that it's that same reunion of opposites, that same complementarity that grounds the act of sexual union between man and woman. So let me read you another verse here from the book of Genesis that's also on the handout. So this is Genesis 2.24. The man said, this is when you know, Adam wakes up and says, oh, who is that? And he sees Eve for the first time and he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why. Referring back to what was just said, you know, she's, she, you know she's, she's like me. She was taken out of me, but she's also like, wow, she is super different than me. Like, uh, pfft, obviously. That is why a man leaves the, his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. A reunion of opposites. And let me just read you one more quote that I think is uh, just helpful in kind of explaining this a bit better. So uh, a guy here named Sam Albury says that it's this sexual difference that accounts for the depth of union between the man and the woman. Eve was created out of Adam, made from his body. Their one flesh union is therefore something of a reunion, joining together what had originally been one. And for this reason, the Bible always speaks of marriage as between one man and one woman. And as support for this, you know, one of the, the things that you can think about is procreation. It's only between a man and a woman that, uh, that humanity can fulfill God's command in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply. And, and Jesus thought so too. You know, Jesus is oftentimes accused of not really having anything to say on homosexuality as though he can just let us kind of be neutral on it. But in the Gospel of Matthew, he goes back to creation and he talks about marriage as between a male and a female. And so Jesus gives no other understanding of marriage except the one that would have been just normative for anyone who was Jewish or Christian in that day, as between a man and a woman. And one final thing, and I think this actually helps to make sense a little bit of just the dynamics that God designed in marriage, is that marriage actually images God. What do I mean by that, that marriage images God? And, and why would that matter when it comes to defining marriage? To start out here, I mean, according to the Bible, the Bible says that all of us are made in God's image. And so, what that means is that therefore marriage, God's joining together of two of his image bearers, that also has the capacity to reflect his image in creation. And one of the ways that marriage is an image of who God is, is through how it shows God's incredible unity in diversity. So, through looking at scripture, we know that God is Trinitarian, that he is three different persons sharing one substance and, and are all brought together in perfect unity. Perfect unity and perfect diversity. There is no other place where perfect unity and perfect diversity meet except in God. Our country 
is being torn apart right now because there is not a place except in God where perfect unity and perfect diversity come together because we are trying to be one unified nation. But if you haven't noticed, there are a whole lot of different people in this nation with a lot of different opinions, a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different identities, and sometimes we just have a really hard time getting along. And I heard someone say once that mankind's ultimate quest has always been to find unity in diversity. And the answer to that quest is God. And God intended marriage to be that too. I mean, do you know, you know, if if you've ever seen a married couple that has been married for, you know, a man and a woman married for 40, 50, 60 years, you know, one of the things I love about Devante's church over there is that they have so many couples like this. I just, I love going there. You know, they'll sometimes put up on their their little pre-service slides, you know, congratulations to, you know, Jane and John for 60 years of marriage. It's their anniversary this month. I thought, wow, man, if I could, you know, if I ever get married and I can accomplish something like that, that would just be, wow. I mean, some of you, some of you know from your parents or maybe even from your own relationships that, man, like when a, a guy and a girl are trying to relate together, there can be just a lot of tension, a lot of struggle. But to see over, over like decades and decades and decades of how two people through love and through truth and through commitment have been able to <laughs> two very different people have been able to come together in unity. Wow, like that is a little whiff of heaven, of the way that God is unity and diversity. And he wants us to look that way too. And it's also important uh, for, the, for the relationship between Christ and the church. This is another way that marriage images God. So in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 5, Paul says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis here. And then he says this, talking about human marriage, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. His point here is that Christ's mystical union with the church is like the mystical union between husband and wife. And so in the Bible, marriage between one man and one woman is God's chosen means for revealing an aspect of his image here on this earth. And by the way, we're going to probably talk about this a little bit later on, but that doesn't mean, by the way, that if you're single, that, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a half a person. I can't really image God. It's not true because Jesus was single and he was the image of God. So uh, just, you know, throwing one out there for all the singles in the room. And we might talk about that more a little later. So the first part of the story of the Bible is the story of creation. How did God make us? What did he intend for us, for marriage? But of course, there was also the fall. And that's the second part, the second chapter, really, of the story that I want to look at. And the basic point of the fall is that, that all of us have rebelled against God. All of us refuse to make him first in our lives. And as a result, every single human being is horribly lost in sin were it not for Christ. And if you look at one of the most penetrating passages on this, it's Romans 1, which is what we've been looking at. And when you look at Romans 1, you find out that sin affects everything. First thing sin affects is our hearts. You know, it says in Romans 1, chapter 25, they, they worship and serve created things rather than the creator. And that's a heart problem. That represents a corruption of the human heart. Because what this whole passage in Romans 1 is really about, it's Paul is saying that all of our sin tendencies, including sexual sin of any kind, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever, all of those sexual sins are ultimately a failure of worship. When you worship something, what you're doing is you're exulting in the beauty and the excellence of that thing. So, you know, if I 
am, you know, at my grandma's house, let's say, and I'm up in her attic, and I find this diamond ring that's just been sitting up there, you know, it's been kind of forgotten, it's this family heirloom, and I look at this thing and say, wow, this is a pretty neat diamond. I might take it into a jeweler shop and get this thing appraised and see, you know, just see how much it's worth. And, you know, you take it to the jeweler, and the jeweler pulls out his little thing, puts in his eye, and he looks at this thing. And, you know, his eyes just, like, start to pop out of his chest, and his heart starts to pound and pound. He says, oh, my gosh, like, this thing is a one of a kind. Like, the art of how to carve a gem like this has been lost from the face of the earth. He kind of turns it and rotates it in the light, and he's just like, holy cow, this thing is amazing. He's exulting in the beauty and the excellence of that jewel. And to worship God is to exult in the beauty and the glory and the perfection and the grace and the love and the mercy and the excellence of, 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 of him. That's what worship is. And the whole Bible claims that there is no one more worthy of our worship than God. On top of that, there's no one who can truly satisfy the human heart except God. The reason that the human heart is empty and we feel such loneliness and security and, and, and despair is because we have forgotten to worship the only one who is good. And in Romans 1, Paul says that we've exchanged the worship of that God for the worship of trifles. That we worship all of these things that are, are just so pitifully small compared to God. You know, we worship image and sex and money and power and family. We take good things and we make them God things. And God gets pushed out. God becomes just a mere accessory. And the Bible's word for that is idolatry. And because of our idolatry, our minds are affected as well as our hearts. Verse 28 says he gave them over to a depraved mind. The fall affects the mind. Because of the fall, some people have actually ex who, who experienced this in, in the form of mental health problems, things like anxiety and depression. That doesn't mean that God hates you more or doesn't love you as much as other people. Those things, many of them, are, are, come from biological places and are consequences of a world that has fallen. And it's also in our minds where we nurse grudges, where we stoke lust, where we plot revenge. Our minds are affected by the fall. Our bodies are also affected by the fall. And this ties in to homosexuality. In verse 24, it says, He gave them over to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies. And because our bodies are born into a fallen world, we live in a world that experiences things like physical illness and disease, and our sexuality is affected too. And this is true for everybody, no matter sexual orientation or, or sexual attraction. And according to the Bible, homosexuality is one of the results of that. And let me just press in on this a little bit. On, on what the fall means for homosexuality. What I've done on your handout is I've listed some of the key passages in Scripture where the rubber meets the road and it actually talks point blank about this subject. I'm only going to look at just two of those tonight. There's not time to do more. And actually, uh, there, are, there are people who have looked at these and, and kind of done, you know, exegesis, the work of actually working through the text and, and, and showing what it means far more effectively than I have. I actually have here... Um, for anyone who's interested, a couple copies of a handout uh, where one of, uh, you know, a New Testament scholar, a former teacher of mine, um, very thoroughly goes through these texts, and he comments on them, and he, he tries to show what they teach. And uh, if anyone is interested in those, I have a few copies I can give away at the end of tonight. Uh, but what I want to just say in general about all of these texts is that, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, I don't necessarily feel that I'm going to, you know, have 
you want to take the time to look through every single thing is that ultimately when you look at these texts, I think you have to admit that the Bible is perfectly clear in what it says in condemning homosexual activity. Let me just show you one example of this from probably the clearest place in Scripture, which is in Romans 1. So in Romans 1, this will be up on the screen. It says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, the context again is how um, in this chapter, we've exchanged the authentic for a counterfeit. And Paul cites homosexuality as a key example of this, of how we've taken what God naturally created and have exchanged it for an alternate um, order. And since it's obvious from the text itself that this passage is speaking to homosexuality, what I want to do with this text, I want to simply respond to some of the recent revisionist interpretations of these verses. There are some who who, have said that in these verses that Paul isn't actually talking about all homosexual acts, but he's only talking about uh, what you might call like exploitative exploitative ones. Uh, So things like rape or prostitution or uh, pederasty, which is um, sexual contact between uh, an older man and a young boy. And that Paul in this passage was not referring to loving, committed gay relationships. That's the claim that some have made. Um, But I just don't know that you can really support that from the passage. It says in the passage that they were inflamed with lust for one another, which indicates mutuality rather than, you know, sort of one party exploiting the other. That can't refer to things like rape or pederasty or prostitution. Or, you know, another thing that's been said about this passage in the opinion of some is that when Paul speaks of women exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones, the claim is, is that What Paul's really saying is that he's referring to lesbian women who have intercourse with the opposite sex, and that is an unnatural violation of their homosexual orientation. But I think the problem with this is that this reads into Scripture the modern concept of sexual orientation, and that's simply not there in this passage. That, you know, our concept of sexual orientation, this is a a way that today we have tried to explain the cause of same-sex attraction as something that's more or less a fixed orientation. But if you look at Paul's words, Paul really isn't concerned about the cause of same-sex attraction, that his words simply condemn all same-sex activity regardless of what may cause attraction to the same sex. And if you're interested, by the way, in digging a little bit more into some of the, the, the responses to some of the arguments that have been made um, that are kind of more revisionist. You know, for example, there's a book out there called um, God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines, um, which is a book that I've read that probably is, is one of the books that's floating around right now that kind of tries to offer um, a revisionist approach to some of these chapters. Um, I have a, another handout here that responds to that. If you want to take a look at that, you're also welcome to as well. Um, one more passage I want to look at here is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And it says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And this passage has two things. On the one hand, it does say that those who practice in an unrepentant, continued manner 
homosexual activity will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is why this is such an important topic to talk about, because here it's considered a salvation issue. But it also says that that is what some of you were, that in Jesus, Jesus radically, totally forgives and cleanses us of every single sin, every single, every single transgression that we might wrestle with. I also want to note here in looking at these passages that these verses that we've looked at, all of these condemn homosexual activity as sin. And they don't condemn, they don't speak of as sin, simply attraction to the opposite sex if one refuses to succumb to that temptation and act upon it. Even though it is true that same-sex attraction is a consequence of the fall that was not part of God's original creation plan. And the reason I say this, to make a distinction between activity and temptation, is because in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, it says that Jesus was test-tempted in every way just as we are, and yet was without sin. So the Bible itself makes a distinction between temptation and acting on that temptation. I want to say that these verses that we're looking at are speaking of acting on the temptation, the actual activity itself. So I hope I've shown you that that the Bible is perfectly clear in what it says about homosexuality, but it's also perfectly nuanced in what it doesn't say. The Bible does not say that we can pick our own struggles. Now, sometimes we do pick our own struggles when we entangle ourselves in in things through intentional, deliberate, personal sin. That's true. But there are certain effects of the fall that affect different people in different ways. You know, think of genetically inherited diseases. You know, it's not that someone inherits a genetically inherited disease because they're worse sinners than other people. Remember what Jesus says about the man born blind. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, you know, who is the sinner here? Was it this guy or was it his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. That that these kinds of, of, of things are not necessarily caused by specific personal sin. Jesus says, this happens so that God may be glorified in his life. And the Bible says all things work together for good for, for those who love God, that every single thing we struggle with, God is going to use that for our good and his glory. And that's, that's good news. So, you know, in, in fact, when, when, one of the things I think that we as Christians can sometimes be, can be guilty of is, is sometimes saying things that the Bible doesn't necessarily say. So, you know, neither the Bible nor modern science actually has anything definitive to say about the specific origins of where homosexuality might come from. You know, there have been all kinds of attempts to do this, um, but we're realizing that, you know, man, you know, the science doesn't really know, um, and, and the Bible doesn't necessarily say, oh, it was because of this specific thing. You know, apart from the fall, there's not much more it says. And uh, a famous scientist guy says that it remains difficult on scientific grounds to avoid the conclusion that the uniquely human phenomenon of sexual orientation um, is a consequence of a multifactorial developmental process. All he's saying is... It's a bunch of different things. We're not sure which one it is. (laughs) In which biological factors play a part, but in which psychosocial factors remain crucially important. And the Bible also doesn't say, it never promises that God will necessarily change a person's same-sex attraction. There have been certain Christian groups that have tried to, you know, uh, who, who have advocated sort of praying the gay away. And there have been many people who have been set free from that. That's great. Uh, But at the same time, that also has been done in a way that has been coercive and it's been damaging to certain people. It's left a stain on the church in some some ways. And the Bible also never says that homosexuality is worse than other sins. And I think sometimes we as Christians forget that. 
The point I'm trying to make in all of this is that in the end, all of us are deeply broken sexual sinners and we're in need of God's forgiveness. Homosexual activity is one and only one example of that brokenness, of a way, of a behavior that is not in line with God's will for human beings and especially Christians. And finally, what I want to do is I'm going to look at the last part of the story. We've looked at creation, we've looked at fall, and now I want to look at salvation. The gospel is good news for every human being. And and what we've seen so far is that, that God made a good world, because of our rebelliousness, because of our sin, that world has fallen, that there are consequences of that fall. Same-sex attraction is one of those things that has come into the world through that. But that Jesus didn't remain up in heaven and simply allow us to languish in the puddle of our own sin. That he came down, he took a body, he lived on this earth, he was tempted in every way just as we are. He went to the cross. He was nailed to a, tr- to a piece of wood that he created. He died on a hill that his own cosmic hands had formed and had shaped. And on the cross, he takes all of the punishment for sin. He defeats all the powers of sin and darkness. And then three days later, rises from the dead. And that was God's great amen to the sacrifice that Jesus made in order to show that Jesus had perfectly, completely paid it all through his sacrifice on the cross. And the result of that is access to God. That we can have a relationship with the creator of the universe if we're willing to come to him, repenting of sin, and following him. And that's how we come before God. We come before God in nothing but total surrender. You know, some of you have heard me share this illustration before, but if you were to take the distance between the earth and our sun... 93 million miles, and reduce it to the thickness of this piece of paper, the distance between our earth and the next nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And if you were to take the distance between, or the diameter of our galaxy, it'd be a stack of papers 360 miles high. And in the book of Hebrews, it says that God holds all of these things together by the word of his power. It's almost as though it's like his little pinky finger. He's over it all. And if that's who God is, that is not the kind of person that you invite into your life as your personal assistant. The reality is, is that God is holy. He is utterly set apart. And we come to him on his terms, which is repentance and faith. And repentance means just completely surrendering ourselves into his hands. It's to lay down our sinful lifestyles and our preferences. And faith means shifting the entire foundation of our existence onto Jesus and his finished work on the cross, which is why Jesus says that to follow him carries the highest possible cost. The salvation is free, but he calls us to carry our cross, to die daily. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And in America, we live in a world that has largely forgotten the cost of discipleship. One person who knew that was a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian martyr who died in the camps of Nazi Germany, and he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We've lived in a world that has accessorized Jesus to our agenda, but the Bible says that the only discipleship that's worth living, the only discipleship that brings true life is to lose your life and to lay your life at Jesus' feet and to come to him at total surrender. And that is the fountainhead of a peace that passes understanding and intimacy with God that is the greatest joy of the human heart. It's 
the fountainhead of a new identity. You know, we said earlier that our culture says that our identity is self-created, but the problem is that that's so small. I mean, what happens if your identity becomes so wrapped up in your sexuality or so wrapped up in your gender identity that, that you have chosen for yourself? What happens if, 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 if sex lets you down? You know, what happens if you grow weary of it? There are people who, who have had all the opportunities, have all the sexual experiences possible to man, and, and they have come to the end of their lives and have said, I am empty. The gospel sets you free from that. The gospel says you are not your sexuality. And that is good news. That There is a higher identity that you can go to as a beloved child of God. And God's love is the only thing that will never let you down. But when it comes to salvation, the Bible says that we have been saved. We have been justified. It also says that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That Christ has yet to come back and completely do away with sin and evil. And that means that we're in a waiting period to some extent. That when we come to Christ, He begins to change us. He gives us His Holy Spirit. And that Spirit begins to work within us. But it doesn't mean that we don't continue to have struggles in this life. Our old sin nature still wants to fight against our new nature in Christ. And at times, we're tempted to chase after sinful habits. Many of the effects of the fall are still with us. Things like anxiety, disease, depression, same-sex attraction. And those struggles are hard. Those struggles are hard, and God doesn't necessarily always spare us those struggles, and instead what He does is He uses them to sanctify us and to make us more like Jesus. When I was in the UK, my pastor was a man who had experienced same-sex attraction for most of his life and had chosen to live a lifestyle of celibacy because he believed that that was what it meant to be faithful to Scripture. And here's what he said about his struggle. I'm going to put this up on the the screen here. And I'm actually going to skip part of this because in the first part, he's just saying what I basically said already, that God does have the power to change us, but he doesn't promise it. He doesn't promise that it'll take away homosexual desires or same-sex attraction. But he does say, this is the part I'm going to read partway through. It's important to recognize that very often God's power is seen not by him removing our temptations in difficult circumstances, but by giving us the strength to persevere and live for him in the midst of them. Understanding this profound principle of God's power being seen in weakness will transform our attitude towards all battles, toward all our battles as believers. We will then be able to see our struggles, including the experience of living with same-sex attraction, not just negatively, but also positively. And ultimately, what we're promised because of what Jesus did is that one, one day, he will come back, we'll be with him in heaven, all of our earthly struggles will be taken away, and that we'll live in the new heavens and the new earth that won't be tainted by sin, by the fall, and all of its results, including this. And that's the great hope that Christians have. So I've just given you a lot. <laughs> um, and thank you just for just so respectively and patiently just sort of taking all of that in. Um, now, just really quick, here, here comes the fun part. And just like, oh man, five minutes. I'm going to take you on a whistle-stop tour through some nitty-gritty. Because this is where the rubber really meets the road. Okay, all of this stuff, you know, here the Bible says on sexuality. What on earth does this actually mean for like the actual sticky situations of your life? So you ready? Ready, set, here we go. Uh, there's some questions on your handout. Um, and the first one is uh, about uh, some, you know, some things biblically here. Uh, first of all, what does faithfulness look like for a same-sex attracted Christian who wants to put Jesus first? Uh, well, 
you know, on the one hand, that's a pretty normal calling. Um, that a person who experiences same-sex attraction and, and believes in Jesus is a Christian just like any other Christian. Uh, at the same time, I think there's something a bit unique about that. Um, because the Bible is clear that marriage is between one man and one woman, which means that the option for those who experience same-sex attraction would be to remain unmarried and to live in celibacy. Those are the Bible's two pathways, man between, marriage between a man and a woman or abstinence from sexual relations through celibacy. Now, that leads to a second question, and this is where the rubber really meets the road. The question is, is it really realistic? Is it really realistic for same-sex attracted Christians to live their whole lives without sex? Some of you guys, you know, <laughs> uh, have probably noticed that our culture would say that absolutely that's not realistic. Because the, the narrative of our culture says that your identity is tied to your sexuality, that, that to truly be yourself means experiencing sexual pleasure, and that to try to curb those desires can be psychologically damaging. But uh, what I want to show you, um, rather than simply telling you this myself, is I want to show you, um, in the words of someone else, that I think this actually is realistic. Michelle, would you be able to just quickly play um, the video? This, this is a video from a friend of mine named David Bennett. Um, and he talks about his experience living as a celibate, same-sex attracted Christian. I really love the way that he says at the end that he doesn't see it as a terrible burden, but it's a way to come to know Jesus better. And if Jesus really is who he says he is, if he really is the thing that the human heart is meant to be satisfied in, then I think that can be true. Uh, really quick, personally, what should I do if I experience same-sex attraction? Um, pursue Jesus. Delight in Jesus. Allow him to speak to you through his word. Resolve to make him first in your life. And I think he will work out the steps that you can take as you work through that with him. Put Jesus first. And I can, I can guarantee you that, that he will lead you. In other, you know, that's not very specific, but, but seriously, Jesus is the one you need, and he will make each step of, of, of that path clear. And I would encourage you as well um, to share that with at least one other mature Christian. Um, you know, no Christian is meant to be an island. Everyone needs people that we let into our lives that we share struggles with. Um, these other two here. What should I do if a friend or a coworker comes out to me? Um, right, I'm actually even going to say this. You know, some of you guys one day will have kids. Um, I want you to like file this away. Like, think about like what would I do if my child ever came out to me? Uh, first thing to say is that you know, man, just some emotional common sense. Recognize that this has taken an incredible amount of courage, and that you were most likely picked as the person that that was shared with because you were considered trustworthy. That's a huge thing to get to steward. Thank that person for confiding in you. Assure them that Jesus loves them and listen, 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 listen. Ask questions. Ask, you know, man, how, you know, how, what was this like for you coming to this place? You know, how was it that you, you wrestled through this? Find out what their story is. And then once you have listened, there might be a, a, an opportunity to get to speak into that person's life. Um, listening to try to discern where someone is. You know, if someone um, is trying to follow the Bible when it comes to the issue of same-sex attraction and is feeling shame because of that struggle, then you can offer prayer, you can offer support. If someone is ignorant 
of what the Bible has to say on homosexuality than gentle teaching and instruction may be worthwhile. And, and, and especially if, if the person who comes out to you is a close friend, or maybe even someday, you know, a, a loved one or a child, give space, show love, remember that you can't change another person, but point people back to Jesus because he's the one we truly need. Uh, just, I'm going to skip this next one. Uh, look at societally. How can the church be better at showing grace and truth to the LGBTQ community? Um, and this one's huge because I think we've gotten this one wrong so often as Christians. Um, I want to say that for same-sex attracted Christians, the local church is God's primary provision for satisfying the profound needs of human intimacy and friendship. And the question is, are our churches in a position to provide that? It's thrive. We're not a church, but we're a, you know, a group of believers. Are we in a position to provide that? And I think to take steps to do that, one thing that we can do is that we can stop idolizing marriage and family. Those are good things. Those are not ultimate things. And if you read what the Bible says, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, man, I love singleness way more. But when was the last time you heard that preached? So we can stop idolizing marriage and family. We can create an environment where same-sex attraction can be talked about openly. We can give a voice to people like my friend David, who are walking out this in a faithful way because they have a perspective that needs to be heard. And we can create an environment of thick relationships and loving community. One of the guys that I knew in the UK who had same-sex attraction said the best gift that anyone has ever given him, there was a family from his church who gave him a little box, and all that was inside was their house key. And they said, you can come over any time you'd like. And the only last thing I want to say on this is that I think as Christians, a lot of times we can be really, really good and excited about speaking biblical truth and really, really bad about showing love. I think we kind of err more to that side sometimes. And I would just say that if you're going to speak the truth, show love. I mean, if you really, you know, if this is like a soapbox issue for you speaking to the Bible's perspective on this, then, you know, I'm not going to say don't do that, but I would say that before you do that, go find a friend who identifies as gay or lesbian or transgender and invite them over for dinner. Get to know them. Show, you know, don't just say, oh, well, we should show grace and truth, but don't ever actually act it out. <laughs> it's a lot easier to talk and just talk about truth than actually to show love using your actions. Um, and then this last one I'm not going to talk about either because we're out of time. I've eaten up most of our time. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for, for just taking all this in. And I think the best way to conclude for tonight is I'm going to pray and then... Um, I think what let's do, let's just small group leaders take um, a shorter time in small groups, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Um, and, and what I would encourage you to do is to either come up with your own questions off the back of this talk, or um, instead of just kind of having some set questions, maybe just open it up and allow people to talk about like what stood out to you in this message? What was it that, um, you know, what, 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 what did I actually think about that? What's my real opinion rather than just, you know, what I want other people to think? Um, and just create a space to kind of discuss what we heard tonight. So um, last thing, just before we close in prayer, I have some resources on the bottom of this handout if you want to press into this more. Um, that interview with David, the whole thing is available on one of those links. And then up here, there's some books. Um, there's this one here called Is God Anti-Gay, which is a great little thing that uh, just sort of gives a good overview. And then the rest of these are some books that are basically accounts of same-sex attracted uh, believers who have walked out this in a way that is biblically faithful and share their stories of what that journey has been like. So you're welcome to come and take a look at those or even to borrow those books if you would like. So uh, let me go ahead and pray for us and then we'll move into small groups. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you um, that we can trust in your word and um, run at these tough topics. Um, would you just fill us with um, your mind and your heart about this topic? Um, Lord, I want to pray that um, for people that we know, um, for people that um, have this as a live issue in their lives, that um, you would just encourage us um, in your love for us and in how we can love others um, in grace and truth in the way that you did. In Jesus' name, amen.